in my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There, the hand of the Lord was on him. Now to verse 19. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out toward what the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of the rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their head was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as a full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, this is my third time coming out to Chowchilla to worship with you here at Cornerstone Community Church. Uh, and over the years, I have come to know more and more of you and make your acquaintance and have gotten to know uh, people in this congregation. And I just love uh, coming to this church. Uh, and we, on the way in, I got to meet with Mike and Geraldine DeJager. And then on Friday night, uh, Mike and Wendy Venderdeuce uh, invited me to their house for burrito night and got to meet Cybron and Caitlin. Yesterday, Curtis and Nikki Upton invited us to attend a Trinity uh, Pregnancy Resource Center fundraiser, and, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, what I have come to know is that you are a church full of people who love the Lord. You are uh, men and women who have been changed by, by Jesus, and you continue to anticipate for Jesus to work in your life. Uh, so I am so grateful every time I come here. I look forward to it, even though I have to stay with sight and pretend to like him. Uh, <laughs> That's, that's, that's just about a small price to pay. <laughs> you probably uh, have never really heard a sermon from Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, as I was reading, some of you were probably wondering, oh man, where are we going to go with this today? Not quite sure what's happening. Well, you see, this all began when, uh, back when I just left, attended seminary back about 20 years ago. 
You see, I, I grew up in Indonesia. My dad is a pastor, and then we moved to the United States. Uh, in 1992, we landed in the Bay Area, uh, and I lived there before eventually moving to the Midwest, the Chicagoland area, to attend a seminary there called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was there at Trinity for about 17 years before God brought me to Holland, Michigan, where we are now, uh, with my wife and my two teenagers in, in Holland. Well, when we got to Trinity, one of the things that we had to do as a new seminary student was that we had to take what was called a standard Bible content exam. Now, as I said, I've come to know that you are a church that knows God's word well and knows scripture well, so whether you knew it or not this morning, I'm going to give you a quiz. And I'm going to share with you some of these examination test questions to see how, you, how well you really know the Bible. I see somebody nodding his head. He's like, ready to go. Come on, let's go. All right? So, you know, let's start with the easy one, right? Let's start, you know, what is the first book in the Bible? Good, good. The last book in the Bible? What is the last book in the Old Testament? All right, that guy, Malachi, quick there. How many books are there in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, 66, yes, total books of the Bible. How many books are there in the Old Testament? 39. How many books are there in the New Testament? 27. Three times, 39 books in the Old Testament. Three times nine is 27, book in the New Testament, right? How many Gospels are there? Four, good, all right. In which of the Gospel can the seven I Am statements of Jesus be found? Ooh, John, good. How about the parable of the prodigal son? Gospel of Luke, great. Okay, now here's a tricky one. I want you guys to just think about it, okay? True or false, in the book of Hebrews, Paul encourages us to throw off every sin that entangles. True or false? Yell it out. I got a couple of false, a couple of truths, right? Some of you say true because, yes, you know, because we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, let us throw off every sin that entangles. But then he said, Paul encouraged us to say that. Did Paul write the book of Hebrews? No, not really, but maybe. Do we really know? Right? It's a bit of a trick question. So I was kind of swimming through these, right? I'm just like, check, check, no problem. I am going to be a seminary student after all. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I did a wana. I did the sword drill. I was, I was I'm pretty good at these kinds of things. And then we got to the Old Testament prophecies. And then one question really made me mad. The question went something like this. In the book of Ezekiel, which of the following visions is not in the book of Ezekiel? Ooh. The vision of the valley of dry bones, the vision of a boiling pot, the vision of a wheel within a wheel, and it stumped me. I wasn't sure. And I don't want to tell you that I got it wrong, but I think I did. <laughs> but since then, I started this, it, it awakened a desire for me to, to, to know the scriptures, to know the word of God well. And one of the things that I discovered in that journey is the importance and significance of this chapter, Ezekiel chapter 1. Friends, you have Bible with you still. Keep it open uh, because I do want to walk through the text. As I mentioned earlier, you probably have not heard too many sermons on the book of Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, does anybody remember ever hearing a sermon from the book of Ezekiel chapter 1? Anybody? I see a gentleman in the back. Awesome. That's great. Most of the times when pastors preach in the book of Ezekiel, they'll preach from Ezekiel chapter 34. 
the, 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 the Israel and the good shepherd and how the priests and prophets of Israel were not good shepherds. Or Ezekiel chapter 7, right, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Son of man, say to these bones, rise up. And this vision and this valley of dry bones rose up. But chapter 1, I want to argue I want to suggest to you this morning is an important chapter because it is one of the, it contains one of the most magnificent appearances of God himself in the Old Testament. Scholars call this a theophany, thea for God, theos, phaneo is the Greek for, for appearance, it's a theophany, it's an appearance of God. There are other theophanies in scripture, you may recall them, uh, God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, uh, the appearance of God in Mount Sinai when he gave, the, uh, gave Moses the Ten Commandments, there are other theophanies. As I read this passage, some of you may have recalled Isaiah chapter 6, when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, that's another theophany. I want to suggest to you that this Text, chapter, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, it comes the closest to Isaiah's vision, but it is also unique in why and, and because of where it took place, as I'll explain in more in a bit. But as we look at this text, I want to share two encouragements with you. And the first encouragement is this. Remember that we worship a mighty and awesome God. Remember that we worship a mighty an awesome God. The whole chapter is a vision. And the best way to understand it is to put yourself in the shoes of Ezekiel and imagining seeing this vision coming towards you. In verse 4, he talks about this vision starting out like a windstorm, a huge cloud with flashing lightning come, coming out of it. And then this cloud continues to draw near. It is surrounded by brilliant light and really filled with fire and lightning. There are three aspects of this vision that I want to point out to us this morning. The first is the reference to the four living creatures. In verse 5, Ezekiel wrote to us, In the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Under their wings and on their four sides, they had human hands. All of them had faces and wings. Their faces looked like this, the face of a human being. And on the right side, a face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. And the back, the face of an eagle. Friends, the selection of these animals may seem a little scary, may seem a little arbitrary. What are these things? But you see, they were perfectly understandable for the time. The lion, the ox, the eagle, and, and were often appear in ancient art and in religious figures. The lion is a symbol of strength and courage. The eagle, just like it is for us today, is the most majestic of the birds. It is the swiftest and the strongest. And the ox is not only a valuable farming animal, but also a symbol of fertility and harvest. And of course, the human created in the image of God is the most dignified and noble of all the creatures in the world. And, and Ezekiel noted that these four living creatures had each had four wings. Each of the living creatures, two of the wings were spread upward, and each of the wings is touching the, the creature on the other side. It is actually a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. It is a reminder of the presence. It is a symbol of the presence of God. 
In other words, the four living creatures, each with their wings outstretched, touching one another, is a symbol of the presence of God. And these four living creatures together are declaring that the God of Israel, the God of Israel, Yahweh, has the strength and royalty of the lion, the quickness and mobility of the eagle, the power of the ox, and the wisdom and reason of humankind. Yahweh, in other words, is the all-powerful and all-knowing God. But Ezekiel did not stop there. The second aspect of the vision is that of this wheel within the wheels. It's a little, it's a little hard to imagine uh, what these things are like. It's, 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 like, it's like there's a wheel going this way. There's another wheel intersecting this way. But the, the key point is that as these things move, as, as this chariot-looking thing moves, when it turns, it doesn't really have to turn. It can just move because this, these wheels are omnidirectional. My son is in a, on a robotics team in Michigan, and each year they have to create these robots that can do certain things. One year they have to pick up, uh, do these, uh, make these robots that can pick up balls and shoot them in a hoop, and they would compete with other robots. And as you can imagine, in order to, for you to win a competition like this, your robot has to be accurate but also move quickly in order to pick up the balls all around the arena. So one year they put together this, so that year they put together this robot, and rather than installing wheels, straight wheels like we would see in the car, they put together these omni balls, wheels that were actually in the shape of a ball and could turn every which way, 360 degrees. So rather than moving and turning right or turning left, the, the robots kind of just move like this. And I, that's what I imagine. Uh, this wheel within the wheel may look like. It's a set of wheels that can allow the, 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 the structure, the chariot, to, to move quickly. Now, friends, I don't, I don't know if you've ever imagined or experienced or seen something that is just so astonishing that you have a hard time finding the words to describe it. Andy mentioned that um, we are hoping to take a group to Israel. You, it, it, when we go, be, it would be Andy's third time going, and if I get to go, it would be my second time going. We just took a group up to Israel last November. One of the climbs was at Mount Arbel. And as much as I try to describe it, and I'm going to try it again today, it is really hard to capture all that we experience. When you stand the foot of the mountain, you look, oh, that's not too bad. You know, you get a couple of switchbacks and everything like that, but you get up to the top, and it's, it's going to be fine. Well, you don't realize, and I see Curtis and Nikki, they're looking at me like, where is he going to go with this? How hard is this climb going to be? You get up to at some point in the mountain, and you look up, and you realize that the switchback trails have been replaced by essentially stepping stones and handlebars. At one point, to cover the last 150 feet or so of this mountain, we were literally rock climbing. And so we were grabbing, you know, putting your foot up into one step to another, and you're grabbing these handlebars to get you all the way up there. And when you get up to the top, you look down, you realize you have covered a lot of distance. And so I, would, I took a picture, and I would try to show it to other people, but it never could accurately and fully encapsulate and capture what we just experienced. And I feel that even trying to describe it to you this morning, there's so much more that I could say, but unless you have seen it yourself, unless you have experienced it yourself, it's hard to quite describe what that climb was like. In many ways, what we see here in Ezekiel chapter 1 is Ezekiel trying to describe 
what it is that he's seeing. If you look back in verses, uh, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, he talks about how these living creatures were moving. Going back to chapter, to verse 14 and thir- 13 and 14, he talked about how there was fire moving back and forth, how it was bright and lightning was flashing out of it. The creatures were speeding back and forth like flashes of lightning. He was trying to use every word in his vocabulary to describe this amazing sight and vision that he is seeing, and he just can't find just the right words. So he employs a multitude of words to describe what he's seeing. Someone's like a toddler seeing a Mickey Mouse for the first time or seeing fireworks for the first time. They're just astonished. Jaw would drop, and they're just mouth agape trying to process all that is happening. We are told that these wheels were covered with eyes. They sparkle like topaz. And I want to suggest this morning that this combination of the wheels moving everywhere they are going, covered with eyes, not only points us to the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere, but that he is also the all-seeing God. He is the omniscient God. The third part of the vision that I wanted to point out is the figure in the fire. You've read the text already. You've heard about it. This is as, the, as, this, as this chariot comes closer, there was this vault. Upon the vault, there was a throne. And again, just like a child that is trying to figure out the glorious wonder of fireworks, Ezekiel tries to tell us there's this man, this human figure that is like a glowing metal full of fire. And yet below the waist, he looked like fire. He was filled with brilliant light. He's trying to describe it, but he can't really see it. Commentators have tried to make some theorize about who this figure is. On the one hand, God has taken on human forms in, the theoph- in his theophanies before. But others, including some of the early church fathers, argue that this was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus himself, of the Son of God himself. Now, we can get into a long, huge discussion and debate about whether or not this was Jesus himself appearing in the Old Testament. But for the sake of this morning, here's the most important part. This vision, we are told. Once Ezekiel digested and processed everything that he's seeing, in verse 38, he writes these words. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This was the Lord, and he is here. And so what did Ezekiel do? I fell face down. Friends, I wonder, living in our day and age, we have sometimes gotten too comfortable with God. We have focus on the love and compassion and friendship that God offers to us, which is all true, all part of who God is, but that we have also forgotten that we are not worshiping a God that is fashioned by human hands, but instead we are the ones who have been fearfully and wonderfully made by the only God, the God created the heaven and the earth. Last spring, I got an opportunity to visit the Netherlands. 
Went to a place called Appledorn and got to visit a student of ours who's doing some church planting work. And he shared with me that 35% of the people in the Netherlands identify as an atheist. They don't really know anything about denominations. They don't really know much about the Bible. So a lot of what he has to do is introduce people to God for the first time. In such a context, and I think that is a context that we are entering into in the United States, in a context like that, in a context like ours, I understand that there are times when we have to really make Scripture and the Bible accessible to, to a country, to a people that is increasingly illiterate when it comes to the Bible. But it's not sufficient to stay there. As we grow and as we mature, as we deepen in our faith, we are called to grasp and understand God for the fullness of who he is. That he is what we call in theology a transcendent God, a mighty and awesome God whose appearance throughout scripture causes people to fall face down in worship. And friends, that is what we will do. We, when we see not through a glass darkly, but when we see the Lord in all of his glory, as the book of Revelation tells us, we will be filled with such awe and wonder that we too will fall face down to worship him. Our God, our God is a God who is mighty and awesome. It reminds me of that song that we used to sing when I was in high schooler, Our God is an Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. But friends, it's not sufficient to stop there this morning. My second encouragement for us is this. Yes, we worship a mighty and awesome God, but also remember that we worship a God who draws near to us. We worship a God who draws near and will always draw near to us. In fact, this morning, I want to argue to, uh, uh, that I want to suggest to you this morning that verses 1 to 3 in Ezekiel chapter 1 is just as important as the rest of the chapter. Did you catch what, how Ezekiel started in verse 1? In verse 1, he said, in my 30th year, in the fourth month and the fifth day, and listen to this, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River. And he's, he repeated it again in verse 2. It was the fifth of the month. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. We were in exile. The word of the Lord came to me, a priest, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. He was not in Jerusalem. He was not in the land of the Israelites. He was in exile in a foreign land, worshiping, uh, surrounded by a people who worship a foreign god. The, the, the king and the Jews were in exile because of their disobedience to God, removed far, far away from the promised land. And there, there, Ezekiel said, the Lord God appeal, appeared. I want to suggest to us, as I said already, that these three verses is just as important as the vision itself. I don't think that it is by accident that Ezekiel began the book in this way. 
It was as if Ezekiel is trying to us, remember this, note this. This vision came not in Jerusalem, not in the Holy Land, but in the land of the Babylonians. Now, this may seem to be no big deal to us today. After all, we know and we agree that God can appear anywhere. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. And so we have a different understanding of the relationship between God and place. But you see, in the time of Ezekiel, the Israelites had a different understanding of the relationship between God and place. You see, in those days, deities were seen as being confined to a place. Each god belongs to a place and rules over the territory. So the Babylonians would have their own god and who is in charge over their own land. And they are responsible for protecting and providing for the people in that land. And the Jews and the Egyptians would have their own deities that they worship. And those gods are responsible for for those places. So when, an, when, a, when a country, when, when, a, when an enemy would attack, they would remove the people away from the land. Because their understanding is when you remove the people from the place where their God is in charge, you are removing them from the protection of that God. And that's exactly what the Babylonians did. Not only did they bring the king into exile, they also ransacked the temple and took all the gold and all the precious things and used it for their own sake. They believed that by removing the Israelites out from the promised land into the land of Babylonians, they were removing the people of God from Yahweh's protection. You can imagine the grief and heartbreak that this would cause for the Jews. It is why in places like Psalm 137, they wrote these words, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remember Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Well, listen to these words of a Jewish biblical scholar, Tamarai Eskenazi, who wrote this, exiles. It is not simply being homeless. Rather, it is knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. It is not being without roots, but rather it is having deep roots, but now you have been plucked up. And there you are, roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold, enduring world. This is exile. There's a place where the people of God wonders, where is our God? Where is this mighty and awesome God that we worship? Is he still looking out for us? Is he still protecting us? Who will deliver us? That's why it is so amazing that of all the places, of all the times, the one of the most incredible, comprehensive, full appearance of Yahweh himself would take place while Ezekiel was in Babylon, a pagan land to a people forcibly removed from their home, away from the temple, their house of worship, the heavens opened, and the glory of God appeared to Ezekiel and spoke to him. 
The irony is that when, whereas the Babylonians thought that by forcibly removing the Israelites from the protection of their God, exposing them to a life of uncertainty, God, Yahweh himself, appeared to remind Ezekiel and the Israelites that where they are, he is right there with them. And friends, this moment, this experience of exile is not simply a physical one. My guess and my prayer for us is that those of us as Christians in the United States will not know this experience of physical exile. We will not be forcibly removed from our land to live among a people who disrespects our faith. But exile is not simply a physical state. It can also be an internal state. It can come perhaps with the loss of a job that jars you so much that it removes the foundation and security that you have come to know. Perhaps it is the death of an unexpected loved one, a spouse, a child, a grandchild who died too soon. Perhaps it is the betrayal of a spouse, a colleague, or a friend that brings into question everything that you thought you knew. Perhaps it's even something that you are experiencing with God. Unanswered prayers. God's silence. Hearing no response after hours and days and weeks and years of desperate prayers of crying out to God. Exile, desert, wanderings is something that we all experience, be it physical or spiritual. As Paul Simon wrote in the song, American Tune, I don't know a soul who has been, who's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. And so I wonder if there are some of us this morning, they are wondering if we are in exile. If our dreams have been shattered and broken. Perhaps some of us are identifying with the words of Tamara Eskenazi that we feel like our roots are being exposed. We are writhing, dangling, and the whole world is jeering at us. And if you find yourself today battered, shattered, driven to your knees, then hear this encouragement. Not only do we worship a mighty and awesome God, this God has promised that he will always be with us. This mighty and awesome God is the God who draws near to us. Just like we've already sung this morning, we can raise a hallelujah in the midst of our enemies, in the middle of our mysteries, in the midst of our confusion and doubts. God is with us. And I don't think that it is an accident that in the land of exile, God's appearance took on the form of a chariot surrounded by the four living creatures because God is the God who fights for you 
and for me and for us. And his ultimate demonstration of his love for us, the ultimate way that he has shown and demonstrated to us how much he is, how far he is willing to go for our sake is through his son. The the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God anything to be held onto, but took on the form of humanity, becoming obedient even to the point of death, of the most shameful death of all, death on the cross. And God has also given us his Holy Spirit And he promises to be with us, assuring that no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, there is nothing that we can do to put us out of the reach of the love of God. And God has promised to us in Revelation 21 that he will one day return. Look, Revelation 21 says, God's dwelling place is now among the people. You who have been in exile will one day be in reconciled with God. That you will one day be returned into God's presence. And on that day, there will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old things have passed away. I will be their God, the Lord said. And you will be my children. So friends, I don't know what you are going through this morning, but I know this, our mighty and awesome God, the God that we worship has promised to be with us. He will always draw near to us. Wherever we are, he is there. And so knowing that we can say with confidence the words of Heidelberg Catechism, number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That we are not our own, that we belong to God. Not a hair will fall, not a daze will be stricken, except according to his will. And we can take comfort in that this morning. Let us pray. Lord, you are the God that we worship. Lord, you are mighty and awesome and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present but you are also the God who draw nears, draws near to us. And you have drawn near to us. And you have drawn us near to you over and over again. And so, Lord, this morning we join with Ezekiel in falling down on our knees to worship you. But we raise a hallelujah, proclaiming that our victory is in Christ and in Christ alone. And we ask, Lord God, that for those of us who are in the desert place. Those of us who are seeking an answer. Those of us who are striving for you to remind us that you are with us. I pray, Lord God, that you would show yourself strong. Remind us, Lord God, of your love for us. By all these things, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.